0: So please let yourself come back in, find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. as you let yourself listen this evening let it be more than anything a reminder if there's something that rings true to you Um, and if it doesn't don't worry about it let it go Um, it's a meditation practice in a way to to listen and and sense what is it that you know that's true independent of what anybody else has to say So last week, we had the pleasure of a visit from Jetson Matens in Palmo. How many people were here last week, just to know? And um, I just loved seeing her. She's a dear old friend, and she's such a wise person. Um, uh, for those who weren't, she's a an English woman who became one of the first Tibetan nuns uh, um, 30 years ago or so, spent 12 years in a cave, um, practicing amazing practices, and now teaches around the world, and quite in, quite inspiring and at the same time, very simple and and a little bit tough, I thought, which was great. you know she talked about hope and fear in in her kind of sweet way, and said yes there 's the eight worldly winds there 's gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame. Anybody not have that and they, she said, and you keep waiting for samsara to be different I mean samsara is sort of the Buddhist word for the rounds of of life you know and oh if only it had just pleasure and gain the stock market right or you know no loss and 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 praise and not blame but this is the way that it is get with the program basically if you want to have peace it's not going to be because you stop the worldly winds but because you actually see the way things are and see this dance and rest in a spacious attention or something like that um you know It's the human realm. I have this cartoon of two cavemen and they're kind of having a conversation, one carrying a club and the other says, this whole thing is beginning to get out of hand. I say we give up wearing clothes and forget how to talk before it's too late. You know? (laughs) And it is, you know? So in the human realm, she said, you get what traditionally in Tibetan practice or in Buddhist practice are called obstacles. You know, you want to live in a wise and loving and beautiful way and then you meet obstacles, but of course she translated the obstacles in different ways, and called them opportunities. These are the perfect places to practice and perfect patience and generosity and wisdom and love and trust a deep trust of the heart, especially in these kind of tough times, equanimity, and virtue, um, and that the difficulties aren't the problem. The the difficulties are part of the dance. Without them, life would actually be pretty uninteresting. I mean, you don't go to movies that don't have difficulties in them, do you? You wouldn't sign up. You wouldn't pay for the ticket. You want to see some kind of conflict or difficulty or something and then find out how they got through it. That's you know, That's how they make money, In So one Indian guru who writes, go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells and call out to the gods, but watch out because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So either you take stuff as an opportunity or you just kind of suffer it. Since you're going to suffer it anyway, you might as well do something good with it, basically. That was her, that was her plot. Um, now, I tend in these um, weeks of the holiday season, we're going into Thanksgiving and then into December, to want to do a series of talks on um, what in the Buddhist psychology or Buddhist teachings are called the um, uh, awakened heart, the divine states of love, of compassion, of joy, equanimity, um, because it feels like that fits with uh, going into the darkness of the particular season we're in and also the holiday things and so forth. So I want to pick up from where Jets and Ma um, left off and think together and speak about um, how do we navigate wisely in a world that is praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and joy and sorrow. Um, What does it mean to live wisely in this dance? And in the understandings of the Buddhist psychology and Buddhist teachings, um, when we return to our own most natural and um, connected state, when we're not caught in fear or confusion or greed or hatred, which catch us up, we all know this, but they're not, they're not, uh, they're visitors, they're not the ground. When those have passed for a moment or we release them or we find ourselves resting in a state not caught up in those, then the natural state of consciousness. Is one of both ease or contentment, a kind of stillness, just as you were sitting, the quality of resting like a Buddha while things come and go, and love. And love is really the connectedness with all things, which is the truth, it's the reality. Um, just like gravity, you know, you're pulled to earth by gravity and all the orbiting spheres of the universe are attracted to one another. Cosmic allurement, it's been called, where everything wants to pull something else together with it. Maybe it's the Big Bang missing itself or something like that and kind of trying to draw itself back together. Love is the, is the experience of consciousness of that connectedness. Love, equanimity or kind of natural peace. And then it's interesting because this natural love, when you're not in conflict with things, it's there in you. You feel connected. When love meets pain... It changes into compassion. There you are having a love, you know, loving day or feeling in that s- state of open heartedness. When you encounter pain, then instead of it being the quality of love, it shifts, and you'll hear it because I'm going to talk about compassion tonight. And it has a slightly different quality, which is a caring, a profound caring that's not exactly love. It's rather a caring in the face of difficulty or suffering. And when love meets happiness, it turns into joy and a kind of um, bubbling and gratitude and so forth. And I thought actually about talking about gratitude tonight because it's Thanksgiving week. Um, And in fact, modern psychological research says that one of the things that you can do that is most conducive to having a happy life is to undertake the cultivation of or the development of gratitude. That the people who are most grateful, seem to have the happiest life, if that's something that interests you. (laughs) (laughs) So, in this teaching, what we understand is that when we're not caught up in fear and confusion and the kinds of greed and hatred that can take us over at times, when we're back more connected with ourselves, somewhat at ease then there comes both a natural sense of love or connectedness and with that, um, a compassion, especially for those who don't feel that, who who have who've lost it in some way. Uh, compassion is called, in Buddhist psychology, the quivering of the heart in the experience or in the face of pain or sorrow or loss. When we see that in another being and we're not defending ourselves, there's a sympathy, or, or an empathy, and a kind of vulnerability that's actually very beautiful. The poet Rilke writes, ultimately it is upon our vulnerability that we depend. And this, it's an amazing line, actually. Um, it's so, we like to think of ourselves as independent in America, you know, kind of the cowboy myth. We're all independent contractors, right? But you weren't, I'll tell you. You know, when you were in the womb, you weren't independent. And when you came out, you weren't like, you know, driving around and taking care of yourself. For a long time, you were fed and burped and diapered and, you know, all the rest of that stuff. And it is our lot to be completely interconnected. There's no such thing as independence. That's a fiction. It's interdependence. Um, The quivering of the heart that's touched by the sorrow or the loss or the pain in another. And it is as natural to us as our own breath. I was leading a retreat um, some years ago and there was a woman in our community, a very dear friend, whose daughter died, whose teenage daughter died in a very unfortunate way. Um, And it came to be the one-year death anniversary, she said, I've got to come on retreat. So she was on the retreat, sitting and dealing with the grief that um, almost intolerable of a parent losing a child. Um, And she said, I have to do something for my daughter's death anniversary, you know, something to mark this. What can I do? And I suggested that she do one of the Buddhist rituals that's done at the time uh, of a funeral which was to go outside and ring the bell that hangs there there's this big beautiful bell 108 times and 108 is a number that's a kind of mystical number in India that means it's the completion of all things it's a number that represents completion and she said and, and she said she would go ring the bell and I said when you ring it it's as if you can speak to your daughter it's as if as you ring this bell she was in this meditative place but also tremendous grief this is a way that your daughter can hear you and know that you're here on retreat and you're thinking of her wherever her spirit is so she went out to ring the bell and because there was a whole retreat um, I got her permission I needed to tell people so they weren't sitting there and thinking now why is this person (laughs) ringing the bell and she was really whacking the bell (laughs) And I told them just as they were sitting quietly that this person on the retreat, this was the one-year anniversary of the death of her teenage daughter. Um, and she needed to honor her in some way and was ringing the bell. And I'll tell you, hearing that bell being rung in the silence with a 100 people sitting and tears coming down everybody's face because we were still enough to feel her mother's tears. You didn't have to say a word. It was just there because this is actually who we are. When we're quiet, we can't not know this. Um, And it's one of the saving graces of our humanity that we actually can feel what another person feels. Be kind, writes one philosopher, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Everybody has their struggles. Everybody has their difficulties. And compassion, which is a movement in sympathy, is different than pity. Oh, that poor person, they're suffering, you know, as if they were different than you. Pity somehow separates you from that person. But compassion is the recognition that it's us. We're in it together. And as we undertake a spiritual practice, meditation that we just did and other forms that you do, which are really ways of getting in touch with a bigger dimension than just your to-do list every day or your chores and things like that. As we sit, practice, and begin to pay attention, we discover that we need this quality of compassion very much for our own body, for the healing in our life, for the for the world that's around us. Um, You sit quietly and you feel your stress, you know, or you feel your own hopes and fears for yourself or your loved ones, or the trauma you carry, the unfinished business, the grief that's there comes because you're sitting quietly. It does on retreats all the time, you know, or the divorce that you went through, you know, or your parents went through, or the or the sickness of someone that you know or love, or just how hard it is to be a parent. Sometimes you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are parents, or your loneliness. I mean, and I I hate loneliness. It's been very difficult for me. It's one. Of, I'm a twin. I think I went into the womb saying, "I want somebody in here with me," because <laughs> you know, I don't like I don't like this loneliness. And it was actually a shocking moment at one point. Um, Early on in my marriage, I'd been married for a couple of years, and I thought, okay, I'll marry this person who I love and wonderful, beautiful wife and so forth. And then one day I discovered I was really lo- I was married and it didn't help. I was still lonely, you know, because it's not that. It's, um, so there's this cartoon from the New Yorker, Philip Moffat likes to talk about. Um, it shows these two fish swimming in the ocean, you know, small fish and one talking to you, the other saying, "Um, I want the whole thing, the little glass bowl, the blue pebbles, the cute cute plastic castle, you know. I mean, we always have this fantasy of what we're going to get that's going to make us happy, right? So you sit. You sit and you actually have to deal with your longing and the sense of insufficiency or, or... the the loneliness or, the, or the, the loss, you know, because something didn't turn out the way you wanted, which is always part of life of praise and blame and gain and loss. Or if it wasn't a big thing, and it is a big thing for most of us, then it's a, you know, then it's a smaller thing. I have this poem I read sometimes called Ordinary Heartbreak. She climbs easily on the box and seats that seats her above the swivel chair at adult height, crosses her legs, left ankle over right, smooths the plastic apron over her lap while the beautician lifts her ponytail and laughs. This is coarse as a horse's tail. And then as if that's all there is to say, the woman at once whacks off and tosses its foot and a half into the trash and the little girl who didn't want her hair cut but long ago learned successfully how not to say what it is she wants who at even this minute cannot quite grasp her shock and grief, is getting her hair cut, for convenience, her mother put it. The long waves gone that had been evidence at night when loosened from their clasp, she might be secretly a princess. Rather than cry out, she grips her own wrist and looks to her mother in the mirror, but her mother is too polite or too reserved or too indifferent to defend the girl So the girl herself takes up indifference while the pain follows a channel to a hidden place, almost unknown to her, convinced as she is that her own emotions are not the ones her life depends on. She shifts her gaze from the mother's face back to the haircut now so steadily as if this short-haired child she sees were someone else. And so they're the big losses that we have, but also there are just a thousand ways in our education system or our family where we lose ourselves and we want to find our way back. And to find our way back requires that we learn how to touch the measure of sorrows that's given to us. How have we touch this. How have you touched whatever has been your measure of difficulty? With aversion or denial or fear or addiction, you know, things to kind of cover it over? Or with compassion? Because it's your human lot. It's part of the deal of incarnation to have a certain measure of it. It's part of the Buddha's illumination. There is suffering and beauty. And it's the way that it is. But we not only carry our own trauma and history and pain, but we also carry that of the world. The conflicts in Darfur and places in Africa and Afghanistan and, you know, the continuing injustice and racism that we see around the world and in our own society. In a third world slum, a mother cradles a whimpering infant in her arms. The child has diarrhea, the result of unclean water, and is severely hydrated. She will probably die within hours since the parents have no money for medical care. Three older children, pale and thin, huddle together in the corner of their small shack. Several kilometers away at the seaport, a new shipment of military transport trucks and weapons is being unloaded onto the docks. And we know this. We spend more as a nation... And as a as a global society, on weapons than we do on food for our children, and everybody carries this. We we carry this stuff. We carry our prison system. Two and a half million people in prisons that have become the default mental hospital of our culture. It is, you know. Imagine needing a mental hospital anyway, and then being thrown into a prison. But that's what that's what's happened. Um, so here it is. How do we hold all this? As human beings, how can we not be deeply touched? Chogyam Trumpa Rimbache, great Tibetan Lama, um, talks about it um, this way. He says If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage to feel for it, you feel sore and soft and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel a kind of sadness that doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone insulted you or you're impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open and exposed. And yet it is this open and tender heart and only this that has the power to heal this human world. So if we are to awaken, we have to find a way to bow to this mystery of incarnation with its unspeakable beauty and its great tragedy and all the stuff in between. Otherwise you can't really see it clearly, you can't live wisely. And compassion is the gift that allows us to do this. As the Sufis say, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is part of her heart, and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain, you are called upon to meet this in compassion instead of self-pity, instead of saying, oh, poor me. um, You might say that, but actually it's poor us, because it's everybody. Mercy, compassion. And the beautiful thing about compassion is that it's contagious, that it's self-communicative, that we catch it from one another. So just take a moment, if you would, and reflect for this moment about someone that you may have encountered or met or seen who inspired you or touched you with their compassion. You know, who have you known or seen or met whose compassion really touched you? And then just for the fun of it, turn to somebody near you and tell you who tell them who you thought of. You can do this, it's okay. Won't hurt you. Two people, it could be three if you're if you're really shy, you know. Okay, finish up. Just, just take a minute to do it. That was sweet. The room filled up with all these images of, of you know, grandmothers and Dalai Lamas and whatever it was, Ma- swamis and mamas and lamas and everybody in between. And you can feel that it's contagious. I mean, it's just as modern neuroscience talks about mirror neurons and the way that we catch things from one another, just bringing the memory, just just bringing the name or the image. And all of a sudden, it becomes alive in us. We get touched by one another. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said that, that these teachings of awakening are passed from warm hand to warm hand, or warm heart to warm heart, in some fundamental and beautiful way. And it means that we have to step back. It's a funny thing. There's both an intimacy to compassion and also a bigger perspective. This is the way that it is. So Zandmaster Nhat Han writes, he says, The day my mother died, I wrote in my journal, a serious misfortune of my life has has arrived. He loved his mother greatly and it was a huge thing. I suffered tremendously for a year after the passing of my mother and then one night in the highlands of Vietnam I was sleeping in the hut in my hermitage and I dreamed of my mother I saw myself sitting with her and we were having a wonderful talk she looked young and beautiful her hair flowing down it was so pleasant to sit there and talk to her as if she'd never died and I woke up it was about when I had woken up it was about 2 in the morning and I felt somehow quite strongly that I had never lost my mother. The impression that my mother was still with me was very clear. I understood then that the idea of having lost my mother was untrue. It was obvious in that moment that my mother is always alive in me. So I opened the door and went outside. The entire hillside was bathed in moonlight. It was a hill covered with tea plants, and my hut was set up behind the temple halfway up the hill. Walking slowly in the moonlight through the rows of tea plants, I noticed my mother was still with me. She was the moonlight caressing me as she had done so often, very tender, very sweet, wonderful. And each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine, not mine alone. a living continuation of my mother and my father and my grandparents and my great-grandparents of all of my ancestors these feet that I saw as my feet were actually our feet together my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil and there is a sense in this of something that is timeless the point or the question is not um, the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. That somehow in this description, Chiknath Han felt, and you can feel it as you listen, that we are connected in this mysterious and great dance of incarnation and life itself. That's not just limited by our bodies. I mean, you don't you don't think your body's who you are, do you? Come on. I mean, look again in the mirror. This is me. You know, we have, I talk about it all the time. You have this strange experience. You look in the mirror and you notice that you've aged, right? But you don't feel older. And that's because it's only your body that's aged. And bodies exist in time. But there's a part of us that sees and knows, oh, this is just the body. It's not all of who we are. So when we have this sense... Of connectedness, then something else opens. When we have the small sense of self, you know, what's called the body of fear, and we're kind of lost in our fears, we get afraid that our heart isn't big enough, that we can't tolerate this world, have to defend ourselves in different ways. And meditation itself is an invitation to sit, take some deep breaths, find a ground on the earth, sit like the Buddha and make the space of awareness big enough to begin to embrace this mystery of humanity, of our life. Hafiz, the Iraqi poet, writes, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. Right? <laughs> it's not that you won't be afraid. I mean, just look at the you know, financial picture. It's going to happen. Fear comes. But it's not, it's not your true nature. It's not the ground of being. And in one moment we can be reminded. It's not far away. You know, in India they talk about um this contact with a master or a teacher or a guru, um, the glance of mercy, Ramana Maharshi, who is one of my favorite kind of figures of the last century in India, this very wise, wonderful man. He didn't teach with words very much. People would come and sit in front of him. He might say a few things like, who are you, or inquire into who you are, look into your own identity in some way. But mostly he would look at people with such kindness and such compassion that it would just change their life because they'd never seen somebody gaze at them with so much love. Doesn't, you know, the glance of mercy. Because in fact... In any circumstance, freedom is possible for us. Mercy is possible. And what's asked of us in our spiritual life is to discover this for ourselves, not as some passed along teaching, but the reality in our own hearts. Anne Frank, who writes, I keep my ideals because in spite of the misery and suffering of millions, I still believe that people are essentially good at heart. Oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text. Remember who you really are, who you are underneath the traumas and the fears and the confusion and the advertising and all that stuff. There is to be touched in us when we quiet ourselves a different and deeper and more beautiful reality that is our true nature. And this compassion is essential for us individually, if we're going to open the heart and quiet the mind and see clearly, and it's also essential for our culture. So I'm involved right now in the creation of a little conference that's going to happen in the East Coast, I'm going away, uh, let's see, do I teach next week here? Maybe I do, yeah, then then after that I'm going off to the East Coast. um, and it's uh, a gathering of people, John Kabat-Zinn, who is the original of mindfulness-based stress reduction, Bessel van der Kolk, who's a, um, a, a, an expert on trauma at Harvard, people from various places around the country who are interested in working with vets coming back from Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. And it's uh, to share all our skills, Peter Levine's people, somatic experience, to share our skills um, in working with trauma, and create maybe if we we're lucky something like mindfulness-based trauma therapy, because um, we've got some people from the different VAs coming. Um, and I got involved a little bit in working with uh, Iraqi vets through the men's work that I do with Michael Mead and Luis Rodriguez and Maladoma Somet and and others. Um, and several couple of years ago, I was leading a retreat in the, deep in the redwoods in. Mendocino Woodlands Camp for men. And I've been part of these retreats for more than twenty years. And now we in these retreats um, we have deliberately tried to include young men who are getting out of the gangs, gang life in the inner cities. So we have guys coming up from LA and Chicago and Oakland with their mentors who are who've been in gangs but are trying to get out and also it happened that we had some vets coming back from fallujah and ramadi and and during these retreats we're way deep in the redwood forest in this camp far away from anything um, in an old lodge with a stone fireplace that's been there for i don't know 70 years um, and mostly it's lit at night by candles and we do storytelling and mythology and poetry and drumming and rituals and meditation um, all kinds of things And in the evenings after working together and singing these beautiful African songs that Maladoma teaches us, in the evening men stand up and just talk about what it is like to be a man, and mostly it's just stories of struggle and difficulty, because that's how it is to be a man, generally, as opposed to being a woman, which is equally stories of struggle and difficulty (laughs) and joy. But, you know, nobody knows quite how to be a man. You don't get a manual when you come in, you know, and the culture is not terribly good at teaching that stuff, so... But anyway, one night, after a couple of days, we were there doing our drumming and storytelling and so forth, and talking about real struggles how what it's like when you get into the worst places, how do you get through it. This young guy stood up and he was the youngest guy there he maybe sixteen years old, and he started to tell a story he said i'm in you know i'm in i think he was in Jordan Downs, which is one of the projects in Watts and Um, L.A. And he started talking about the, you know, the gang wars between the Crips and the Bloods. And he said, so I'm out with my guys, and we're near the edge of our territory, and all of a sudden we see coming from the other territory this car with tinted windows moving real slow. And we go, uh uh-oh, you know, this doesn't look good. And so we start to run, because we're afraid it's going to be a drive-by. And these young men who are there... um, They know a lot of dead people. I mean, We'll put on the altar, we'll say, go and bring stones of people that you know your age who've died. And sometimes some of these guys will come back from the stream with their hands full of stones. And it's amazing to see. And they'll weep as they place them on the altar. And he said, so we start to run, and the window comes down and they start shooting. And the youngest kid in our gang gets shot. And he's a real close buddy of mine. And I don't know whether to run or not to run. And I start running away because I don't want to get shot. But I feel bad. I'm leaving him. And then the car goes goes away. And I run back and I hold him and he dies. And this kid is 16 years old and he's weeping. And he said, and then the police came. Um, and they wouldn't let me stay with him. They said, no, this was a murder scene. You can't stay. And he said, wait a second. This is, you know, this is my friend. And I, he tried to stay with him. And so he's standing there telling this whole story and everybody in the room is feeling his agony. And two or three guys over from him stands a one of the Marines, a couple of them who'd just come back from the Middle East. And this the young the gang kids really admire the Marines. There's these great big buff guys with tattoos who'd really they've been in the real battle, not just the undeclared war on the streets, but they were over there in the bigger weapons and so they sort of admire him and this marine walks over and puts his hand around the shoulders of this young boy and says you did the right thing he said when the you know when the firefight starts you got to get down you got to get out of the line of fire but then you never leave your man and so you did the right thing and he's holding him and we're all going "Ah." and then he looks up and he says yeah this is how it is he said i can't tell you what i saw and he says, and I can't tell you what I did. And that's really the agony. I can't tell you what I did. He says, like one afternoon, I'm there and it's getting to be dusk, and, you know, a man in a checkpoint, and there's been all these suicide bombs, and these people are starting to come up the checkpoint, and I say, stop, these, you know, Iraqis, and I can't tell who's who. Stop, stop, we gotta search, we gotta see who's. You know, and stop. And this one guy doesn't stop. This older guy, and he keeps walking. I say, stop, stop, you can't. And finally, he keeps coming, and I shoot him up. And then they start shrieking and wailing, and somebody translates. He says, don't you know the old man was deaf? And so he's standing there weeping now, holding this young man. And those of us who are leading the retreat are just at least me. I'm just kind of breathing and trying to be present for the suffering and then Michael Mead my colleague stands up the mythologist and he says let me tell you a story he said in old Ireland the most famous of the Irish warriors was a man named Coculein is that how you say it those who know Um, and he was um, you know he was renowned as this fierce warrior and one of the stories is that he went to battle because their little kingdom where he lived was being attacked by some marauding army. And the Irish were insane warriors, you know, they went into battle naked with paint on them and their eyes ablaze and just you know, they looked so crazed that mostly other armies ran away. But but anyway, he went out and he was this great warrior and he took his chariot and he almost single handedly defeated all these people and he, he he you know, he saved the day but he became so possessed by the power of battle, covered with blood, possessed by Mars, by Aries, by the by the you know, intensity of battle, that he turned his chariot around and was headed back down to his own town or village as if still caught up he would kill other people. You know, and we have one point three million people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, mostly with great trauma. So there he was, and they didn't know what to do. And then somebody called the old wise woman from the village out. What should we do? What should we do? And she said, there are three things, quickly. So the first is they called out all the women from the village who stood in a line and bared their breasts. This slowed him down a little bit. (laughs) Enough so that they could put a rope around him. And put him in a cauldron of cold water which hissed off his body. They had to fill it three times. And, you know, you listen to these stories and they're really archetypal. I mean, it's talking about the famine and about him remembering the taste of his mother's milk, you know, in some way. And then the third thing they did after filling it three times is they took him and still bound and they laid him on the carpet at at the feet of the local king and queen and for three days and nights they sang the songs of great warriors who had come back and released battle and returned to their life in the village and the town and sort of had made their way back to be part of the human society and after three days and nights they untied him. And after Michael had told this story a hundred men stood up in the dark with these candles and sang for half an hour this, this beautiful kind of haunting African song that we repeated over and over. And it's as if we were singing these guys back into their bodies. And then we talked about it. What kind of greeting is going to happen to the people who come back from Afghanistan and Iraq and you know, are left out on, by the bus on a corner? You know to go back what how do we bring our our warriors and contractors and all how do we bring these people back so what's critical for us at this time whether it's the financial things that we're going through or the fact that we still have two unended wars or other things in our own personal life is the quality of compassion that we bring to one another nothing else will heal ourselves nothing else will heal the world and this is as natural as the air we breathe. You know, Abraham Maslow, the great psychologist, talked about the psychology, um, the, the triangle, the pyramid of needs. The bottom was food and, and water, and then there was above it shelter, and then social needs and creative needs, and finally spiritual needs. If you had, you know, food and shelter, then you had a spiritual need. But at the end of his life, he figured out that he had it wrong, that it wasn't just a pyramid, that in fact even if the needs are not met, even if you're hungry, there's still an ache also for meaning. There's still an ache for connection. There's still an ache to be human in a compassionate way. It is simply woven into us. Um, And what meditation does is it reminds us so that when we get lost in the small sense of self, in the body of fear, We sit, we breathe, our stuff comes up, and we remember, oh yes, hold this all in compassion. All of it's our human incarnation. So uh, a Thanksgiving story for you. It was Thursday, Thanksgiving. Our family had spent the day before the holidays in San Francisco with my husband's parents, but in order for us to be back at work, on Friday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles home to Los Angeles on Thanksgiving Day. It was normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids, it can be a 14-hour endurance test. <laughs> when we could no longer stand it, we stopped for lunch in King City, a little metropolis made of six gas stations and a diner, and it was into that that the four of us trooped, road weary and saddle sore. As I sat Eric, our one-year-old in a high chair, I looked around the room. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family and ours were the only children. Everybody else was busy eating, talking quietly, aware perhaps that we were all somehow out of place on this special day. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee, Hi there! Hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack-whack, on the metal high-chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it all in at once. A tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, worn, baggy pants, a spindly body, toes that poked out of the shoes, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's, hair uncombed, unwashed, whiskers too short to be called a beard. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do now and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi there. Every call was echoed. Echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads, and several people sitting near us <clears throat> hemmed out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric, and he pulverized it on the tray. I whispered, why me, under my breath. <laughs> Our meal came, and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, Do you know Pat-a-cake? Pat-a-boy? Do you know peek a Hey, look, he knows peek a Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was probably drunk, and definitely a disturbance. And I was embarrassed. My husband was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud and shouting? We ate in silence except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. So I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked directly toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me out of here before he speaks to me or Eric. I headed to the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. (laughs) For as I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him, and any air he was breathing, and as I did so, Eric, all the while his eyes re- riveted to his best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching out with both arms in a baby's pick me up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms <laughs> spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored Would you, would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms (laughs) into the man's and suddenly a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands full of grime and pain and hard labor gently, so gently cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm voice, "'Now you take proper care of this baby,' and somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me, "'God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my thanksgiving.' I said nothing more than a muttered thanks and with Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car and Dennis wondered why I was weeping holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, don't let me forget. And what happens if we let ourselves sit quietly, quiet the mind, Open the heart, is that this natural compassion opens in us? It does. It starts with what's difficult and lost and ourselves. And little by little, there comes a kind of shift of identity from my body, my feelings, my pain, you know, all the things that we think we should fix, like Florida Scott Maxwell, who writes. No matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, right? (laughs) All the kind of ways we're supposed to be better. All that stuff comes up. You're sitting there and your whole life kind of parades itself as you sit quietly. And little by little, as you give space and rest and awareness, the quality of mindfulness or respect and compassion grows. And instead of my body and my feelings and my pain, It becomes more the pain. It's just the pain we share. It's the body. It's the sorrow. It's the fear that's part of our humanity. And it's not so personal anymore. It's just us. It's just life. And my family expands from being my friends and loved ones in my community. As someone said, the problem is you draw your family circle too small for my country to become... You know, my planet, my galaxy, my universe, and all of a sudden it's our universe, it's our planet, it's 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 life. And we begin to see, little by little, we feel, we sense, we experience that we cannot separate ourselves from others. And to sit is simply to allow this beautiful and deep process to open in us. And it does, you know? George Washington Carver writes, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life you will have been all of these. And you see that you contain it all. And you will experience it all. So when the Buddha sat under the tree of enlightenment if you take this great Buddhist myth and looked out after his awakening of the morning star and his great liberation looked out with the eye of wisdom across he surveyed the whole wide world and he saw beings like himself wanting happiness everybody wanting happiness very often doing the things that created suffering for themselves and others. And tears started to stream down his cheeks because of this ignorance, this lack of understanding. And it motivated him to get up and walk the dusty roads of India for 45 years, meeting people and say, there is another way. There is a way to live with compassion and graciousness and connectedness, not from the body of fear, not from the sense of separateness, but from interdependence, from this deep wisdom. And it's said that when those tears touched the earth, they sprung up as the goddess Tara, as the bodhisattva of infinite compassion. One of the forms is this that you see over there to the left, this beautiful tanka from Ladakh, uh, is Avlo Ketishvara. She's one of the bodhisattvas of compassion, who has a thousand hands and a thousand arms and a thousand eyes and I know she really does because when my daughter was little she came over here and counted them. You know, she's daddy, yeah, I want to see if it's really true. Is it a thousand? And the thousand is of course the symbolic number for as many as needed. So that she can see beings everywhere. And in seeing the struggle or the 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 confusion or the loss or the difficulty of beings everywhere, she has a free hand to reach out and a free arm to say, oh, this being too, human beings, animal beings, all the kinds of beings of the earth. And so this is what arose in the Buddha, the deepest compassion. And yet it is you, oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are it is your own Buddha nature and you have within you the great heart of compassion that you can touch and awaken and live from and open it is your birthright and spiritual practice is just a way to come back come home to it Gandhi says I believe in the unity of all people and all things And therefore, I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. So it's not separate from you. It is your heart, your heart and the world. And you have within you this great heart of a Buddha. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as if from a distant land. And it can be in little ways, in big ways. The most beloved of Japanese poets, Ryokan, came home to visit his brother. Um, He was called back to the family home because um, the brother wanted um, Ryokan, the Zen teacher, to speak to the brother's delinquent son. So, you know, there were teenagers then as there are now, right? Ryokan came but didn't say any words of admonition. He simply stayed, spent time with the boy and his brother. And after some days, when he prepared to leave, the wayward nephew was helping to lace up Ryokan's sandals and felt a drop of warm water. Glancing up, he saw Ryokan looking down at him, his eyes full of tears. Ryokan simply returned home. And the nephew changed very much for the better. An old story and a really simple one. It doesn't take a lot in our families or communities or really around the world. It takes courage to not shut down, but you can do it. You know, it's not just Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, it's there in each one of us. And so, we can remember this. We can also nourish it. As Walt Whitman said, I am larger than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. We can remember it. We can encourage it through practices of sitting in meditation, as we've done tonight, mindfulness, and also the direct practice of compassion, in which... Maybe we'll do a few minutes of it just to end the evening. In which you use some simple phrases like in the loving kindness meditation of well-wishing for others or yourself. Let's do a few minutes of compassion practice. And the thing about this stuff is that when you practice it, it turns out neurologically, the way modern neuroscience knows, is because of neuroplasticity, you practice something and guess what? It changes you. You become, if you practice anger a lot, anger becomes easy to you. If you practice compassion, it it grows in you. John Ashbery, the wonderful poet, uh, wrote a book, the the title of which came from a question that somebody asked him at one reading is that a real poem or did you just make it up? You know. <laughs> and the practice of compassion is kind of the same thing. You, sometimes it feels like you make it up or it's artificial, but it doesn't matter, actually. That's just an illusion. It's there. So sit quietly. Let your eyes close for a moment. Take a few breaths so you can just feel yourself present in a kind way with whatever is in your own body and heart right now. And sometimes it helps, rather than starting with ourselves, to start with someone else. So let yourself think of a loved one that you care about. Picture them or remember them. And as you remember them, let yourself become aware of the measure of sorrows that they carry. Their fears, their confusion, their physical or emotional or mental pain, or their losses. And as you picture this person that you love, this being, and sense the measure of sorrows and suffering, let your heart be soft and repeat inwardly in the simplest way, may you be held in compassion. And may your sorrows and pain be eased. Or, I care about your pain and sorrow. These simple phrases, may you be held in compassion. And feel how your heart naturally opens, or it can, to respond with mercy and empathy. May your sorrows and pain be eased. And then imagine that this loved one was looking at you, could turn and look at you with the eyes of compassion and see your struggles, your own measure of suffering and difficulty, and how they would say to you, may you, may you too be held in compassion. May your own sorrows and pain be eased. Feel their care for your pain and sorrow. And if we were to continue this practice, the loved one and yourself, we'd include other loved ones and friends and family members and neutral people, and animals, and beings of all kinds, and then eventually work our way to difficult people. And even, as they say in the text, um, then to work with your enemies if you have, those who are the hardest for you, or those who cause suffering and wish that they might awaken. And think of those causing suffering. May you too awaken. May you too be held in compassion. May your sorrows and pain end because that's what will liberate them and those who they harm. And you breathe gently in the heart. And little by little as you practice, you begin to melt the barriers of the heart and trust this great capacity for compassion. it's a tiny taste of compassion practice and it's spelled out in Sharon Sol's book on loving kindness or this book I did on the art of forgiveness and loving kindness and lots of places and it doesn't mean you always feel it sometimes you do it and it brings up the opposite I don't feel compassion for that person they brought it on themselves you know and (laughs) get angry at them and that's but then you feel compassion for that for that part of yourself that's angry and for them all of that um, it 's not like it 's papering it over in some kind of superficial way, but it 's inviting what 's ever present to be known and held respectfully and then you start to look at the environment of the and you know the the injustice and the things in the world that really need your attention and realize that you can keep your heart open that you have within you this great heart of a Buddha and you know um, because we 're connected in these mysterious ways you will you'll see you'll see one last little story and then we'll do a tiny little chant to close and go out and a couple of minutes out into the evening so i got this mailed to me who'd been from a person who'd been um on uh, meditation classes she said it was december and i was walking with my husband toward the paramount theater in downtown C- seattle and spotted this elderly homeless person pushing a grocery cart full of tin cans down the street in our direction. He walked slowly, pushing his cart, his head faced downward toward the cans in his basket with a sad, downtrodden look. Being the holiday season, the sidewalks were filled with people. Saturday evening, the old man never looked up, almost as though he were embarrassed to be there. I thought it'd be a good place to practice the meditations I've been learning." So I looked at the man with kindness and compassion and kept silently saying, my compassion practice. And I kept my gaze on him, sending him silent blessings. May you be safe. May you be held in kindness. May you be held in compassion. May you be well. And as he came closer to us, the old man finally looked up and our eyes met as I continued to silently repeat my metta and compassion. And suddenly the old guy grinned, the biggest childlike toothless grin, and waved furiously at me as though suddenly recognizing an old friend he hadn't seen in years. And I grinned back and waved furiously at him. And that was it. And he passed me and continued on his way. And I turned to my husband and I said, did you see that? And he said, yeah, what was that all about? And I said, I'd just been concentrating on this person and doing my compassion practice silently and... um, I just want to tell you, it looks like this stuff works. (laughs) Yours, you you know, yours sincerely, Susan, whatever. You know, don't you remember me is the phrase sometimes. Don't you remember me? Remember everybody. So these are some of the teachings of compassion. um, And they're a reminder. You know this as much as you know your own breath. Uh, Let us end the evening with a very simple chant. In India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together and the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you or I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste is the Sanskrit word namo, which means to pay respects or bow to. So what I'd like us to do is to simply chant namo nine times And as we do, you can feel inwardly what it is that it's time to bow to, to your own good heart or to your own measure of sorrows, struggles that you can hold in compassion to the people around you, to someone you visualize in your practice, to some place in the world or people in the world that are calling for respectful attention in whatever way that might be. So we'll do that and go out into the autumn evening na mo na mo na mo add harmony na Take the time to sit quietly in this week when you can. Take the time to do the practices of loving-kindness, compassion, mindfulness. Have a beautiful Thanksgiving. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your generosity. For those who were here last week, we collected more than $10,000 for, for the Tibetan nuns from, from Jetsun Ma. It was really fantastic. She went with this huge gift and a great wash of money that will support many of those nuns for you know, a whole year of practice. So fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week if you want. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.